I think one of the biggest differences is our vehicles are not show cars or concept cars. They're actually driving. Right. Uh, they've actually passed all the FMVSS crash tests, okay. right? They also are full speed vehicles. So yep. our vehicles can go up to 75 miles an hour. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I am Kirsten Korosek with TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, um, editor-at-large for The Drive. And as always, I do not represent Argo AI when I'm on Atonicast. Uh, and we're here with our friend Ed. Hi, I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And boy, are you. Uh, Ed, uh, we heard that you got a ride. Um, in one of the Zooks cars in San Francisco and got to hang out with the show's friend, uh, Jesse Levinson, who played piano so beautifully at our party. Uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, well, Zooks is one of the companies that I had not been in a ride in before. I had not been in their vehicle. Uh, that list is, is coming down. I haven't been in Yandex yet. I haven't been in Cruise, actually. Has but, anyone um, been in a cruise car? Yeah, they did uh, a couple years ago. They did some demo rides. They haven't in the last like two years, I'd say. You want to hear something funny about that cruise ride? Yeah. yeah. At the time, I wasn't invited because another reporter told me when I asked, huh, I wonder why I wasn't invited. Um, this is about two and a half years ago. And he said that he was told they were just grabbing a few select people who really had a knowledge about autonomous vehicle industry. What? Ooh. What? Whoa, hey. Hopefully they they fixed that mistake. Uh, <laughs> was pretty hot two and a half years ago. What were they thinking? Yeah. I know. Um, but yeah, there was a small demo ride that was the, the infamous, I think, uh, taco truck one. Yeah. Yep. Um, so anyway, uh, so I've been trying to narrow down that list. Like each time I'm in the Bay Area, just get a little more time in, in vehicles. And Zozooks has been up on the list. They've been putting out... Since about last summer, um, they've been putting out a lot of videos uh, showing the domain that they're in. And it, it clearly from the videos, um, some really tough stuff they're dealing with. And um, I have to say, uh, and, and I think it's important to maybe do some caveats here first uh, in that you know, we've all been in these vehicles. We all talked about this on the show. Like one of the hardest things to do covering the space is to go on these rides and like try and pull out valuable insights without reading too much into these one-off situations that depend on, you know, what the vehicles, what, what, what build it's on, where it's being used, you know, what the point of the demonstration is, whether it's a demo or whether you're just sort of riding along on a, on, you know, what's being operated as a normal test ride uh, or like testing session. Um, so there's, there's so many factors in, in these rides. It's impossible to, you know, it's never apples to apples and, and, you know, you really and want yet. to, and, well, and yet, so what that always is caveating is the fact that like, you know, just, it, this was probably the most impressive ride I've been in, in an autonomous vehicle. Um, and it was simply because hey, what you're saying there, I, I mean, so I would say the Argo, the ride I had in Argo's car was probably, and again, I, so they're so different right? them because domains. Well, and so well, the Argo also it was a year, a year apart. Yeah. So it's, you know, we haven't been in, maybe we need to go back and see what the progress, I think actually going into the vehicle and then going into the same company's vehicle again, a year later it's is, great. is the most telling. And I've had a chance to do that with Waymo because they've been around for, for a really long time giving rides. Um, but not so much with some, some of the others I have with some of them. And we, so maybe we should go into Argo. Yeah. I'm sure that could be arranged. You know, given 
what uh, a little bit of what I've heard about your reaction to the Zooks ride. Uh, maybe the most telling thing about the Zooks ride is that Cruz has not been giving rides. Uh, because, hmm. you know, can you imagine what that would look like if the Zooks ride is quality level X and Cruz can't surpass it, given how much more money and how much greater their resources? So they're in slightly different parts of San Francisco. So it's not, it's still not going to be apples to apples as much as we all want an apples to apples comparison. It's in a harder sense. Um, that's what they say. Uh, it's hard to imagine a much harder domain. And, and so again, so, so it's really important to explain, right? So like, like uh, the Argo ride that I was on uh, in 2018 was really kind of the high bar at that point because uh, it just the, the domain was so challenging and I was able to see a lot of really complex situations that the car seemed to be able to handle really well. The, the Waymo ride was really impressive because there was no one behind the wheel, but the domain was like fairly straightforward. The trip itself, the route was, was very simple. Um, and, uh, and so this one, you know, this is a route they've been doing, I think they said for about a year. Uh, but it was, you know, forget the route. I mean, the route itself went through a six way intersection, which I think they've shown a video of. It went down Lombard street, which are hard, but you know, the route itself is not the hard part because you can practice that. What you can't practice or what you can only practice so much are the kinds of things that you see on the route. And what we had on this route was just a level of complexity in both the human and the vehicle traffic um that again i've never seen from the seat of a self-driving car um so specifically though um i was i was curious about what one um specific event that happened a few times during your ride was with double parked vehicles and um i'm curious about how that how smooth that was because uh, as we've seen, and that's this is one of the cruxes with uh, autonomous vehicle technology is that um, how if you make it safe, there's this can be this double edged sword where it creates more problems and unsafe scenarios if it's so safe that it backs up traffic and waiting to get around this vehicle. So uh, a vehicle that can understand that it's a double parked car as it approaches it. Um, and then make the moves around it seems like an important thing to be able to do. So that that was one thing. I'm just curious what your how how was it? How did it feel? Yeah. So um, you know, this is something that that actually Cruz has sort of famously struggled with. And actually, Kirsten and I we saw it from our, our jump bikes one time um, of a Cruz vehicle stop behind vehicles. And 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 look, it's hard, right? Because it's uh, it's something that is behaving in a way that you're not supposed to see, like a vehicle in a lane that's just not moving. It's stuck there. You don't know how long it's going to be there. Is someone getting in and out? Like, it's just, you don't know. And uh, and so it can be really tricky. Uh, so yeah, it, it was, it was, that was one of the most impo- uh, impressive features just because, um, it was able to for a pretty far distance. You had the visual, the the sensor data visualization in the, in the vehicle, um, and it was able to identify that vehicle fairly early um, as being it had a special classification for a, a double parking vehicle. Um, and when it does that, um, you know, it, it would sort of slow a little bit pulling up to it, but almost no hesitation, very little hesitation. Certainly not coming to a full stop. I don't think in any of those four cases. Maybe it might have come to a stop in one of them, but but. Almost no has it, and and it would just go around it. It would go into the opposite lane. You know, these are things that, like, you know, from a safety perspective, you know, it's just easier if you say, "Well, you're never going to cross the double yellow line." But in reality, in San Francisco, in a place like that, you you have to. You have no choice. And so, um, you know, Zooks has gotten very good at those sorts of things. And and just generally, I would say, 
the part of the Zook system, what they really seem to have nailed, and, and it makes sense given where they've been developing and testing, um, is just dealing with encroachments, right? So whether that's a truck that's encroaching into the lane, whether that's construction, double parking vehicle, narrow, narrow streets like, uh, like Lombard Street uh, that, with a lot of curves. It just, it, it, and, and so and actually Jesse talks in our discussion, which you'll hear in a minute here, uh, about some of the technology they've developed to, uh, to handle that. Maybe you could also talk about one thing I thought was interesting is how you, uh, it sounded like, based on the interview, that you, the vehicle could get really close to maneuvering around another vehicle. And how was it able to do that? Um, yeah, so that's, that's uh, so w- one of the, the new features that they've just added, and, and Jesse will talk about it in this conversation that you hear, um, is, is sort of an onboard mapping system. Um, where they're sort of the cars themselves are, are building the, the maps online, uh, like on vehicle, uh, rather than having a, a you know, well, I, I don't know all of the nuances of how all the different companies do mapping. Obviously, map is important, and um, but but they they do it all on vehicle rather than doing sort of mapping runs uh, to build a sort of offline map, and so um, they use what are called voxels, which are basically three dimensional pixels, and and they kind of have this ability now to to dynamically sort of change the size of those voxels so that up close you can have a very fine-grained detailed sense of what's around you and further away uh you get bigger voxels so that um it you know it's it's you save resources essentially um and that's one i think obviously like you know jesse levinson um you know cut his teeth in in stanford made his name i should say really uh with slam uh which is simultaneous localization and mapping so it makes sense that this would be a focus for them. And I, I have to say, I mean, they must have what it would take to make this work well is not just very, very precise localization, very, very good mapping, um, but uh, also like they've got to have a good prediction engine, right? Because the, the challenge of constrained spaces, especially when you have constrained bases that are made up of dynamic vehicles, is you know doing the predictions with so little margin of error. Um, and that seems to all be very good. So again, I... You know, you can only read so much into this uh, from a single ride, but pretty impressive stuff. More than I expected. And did he talk about uh, the crew's origin at all? Because, you know, uh, Brad Templeton wrote this piece in Forbes a few days ago. You know, I think the headline was, you know, crew's origin, you know, tease up, you know, fight with Zooks. And I remember seeing Zooks like sketches or like, you know, theoretical concept art of like a Zooks vehicle being like bi-directional with, you know, four or six passengers facing each other. I remember seeing these things like four or five years ago, um, which, you know, say what we want about Tim Kentley Clay, the departed, you know, co-founder, but clearly, you know, Jesse and he had this vision that was pretty complex and articulated way back in the day, like a revolutionary approach, um, not an evolutionary approach. Uh, did yeah. You know that? Yeah. So he did. I asked him, I wasn't sure it's, uh, as you know, Alex and, and anybody familiar with the space knows it's very hard to get, uh, companies in the space to talk about their competitors. Um, uh, but he did, he, he, he said, look, he says, it's very validating for us, uh, and encouraging for us that Cruise is also going down this direction of building a robo taxi from the ground up as a purpose built vehicle because that validates the approach that, that they said they've been talking about for a long time. Obviously, they think that they're ahead of the curve um, because they've been working on it longer. Um, and actually, there's a little bit of news in here today. Um, 
you may it might not immediately be obvious, but um, in this episode, Jesse Levinson mentions that um, vehicles completed all of their uh, uh, their federally required crash testing. Uh, no so that's way. a that's a yeah. I mean, that's a big thing. We so should, we should just launch into the episode and discuss it a little bit at the end. Sounds yeah, good. I feel like I feel like we're giving away too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, um, here's my conversation uh, with Zooks's chief technology officer, Jesse Levinson. How's it going? It's going. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Um, so we just got out of one of your test vehicles on what I think I can safely say is the most interesting uh, AV ride that I've I've had. Uh, Want to talk about that? But first, we didn't get a chance to to really talk at the at the, the party in CES. You did, however, uh, serenade us with some lovely piano music. Um, it really made me regret like stopping piano lessons, like low these many years ago i'm just really curious like have you always played piano like when do you start uh yeah i started messing around on the piano when i was about three uh we had a piano and my dad would play it sometimes and i was like that looks cool so i would sort of hit random notes until they sounded semi-decent and then i took lessons for about 10 years so i was i was fairly into it as a kid yeah and do you have a, a favorite like like what were you playing at the party uh i was actually just making stuff up that was not that was not that was not real music, but it's sort of classical style. It sounded great. No, I was that's even more impressive. Oh, that's very kind of you. Um, but let's let's talk about about this ride we just had. So, um, first of all, like maybe you can describe the route. This is a route that you know you guys have done before, so it's not like brand new. Just so people have that context. But but sort of how did you pick this route? What you know, what what's on it that that's that important. Yeah. So this is one of the more difficult routes in our, in our geofence, which is you know, sort of focused on the Northeastern part of San Francisco, which is where most of the active action is and most of the demand for, for rides is. And, uh, and so what we wanted to do is we wanted to come up with some routes that basically really tax the system, the most strenuous parts of the city that we could possibly piece together. So things like six way unprotected intersections, tunnels, some of the steepest roads in the city, uh, really narrow roads, really complicated pedestrian interactions, like the squiggly part of Lombard with tons of tourists on it. So really not just any random route, but what, what are some of the hardest things we can possibly drive? So you learn as much as possible per mile. Yeah. And, uh, and how long have you been doing this route roughly? Um, I mean, we, we change it up a bit and we have a bunch of them, but I think we started driving these types of routes about a year ago. Okay. So, so this being San Francisco, right? Like there's just a lot going on, right? So you have a lot of tracking issues and you have a lot sort of a lot of construction. So you have like mapping things. Um, but like the thing that really, really just jumped out at me as, as being one of the more impressive things I've seen is just your ability to manage, uh, 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 sort of encroachment, right? Like very narrow spaces. And like you see vehicles, I mean, obviously there've been notorious incidents of some, some systems that really, really struggle with this. Others, it's just sort of, there's a, a level of hesitancy. So like what, what, what is Zooks doing that, that, that makes you guys like able to deal with those kinds of issues? Yeah, there's a few things, right? So in terms of handling narrow passages, it's having a, a very high resolution representation of the world, uh, especially near the vehicle, and then super high precision control as well. So if your prediction and your perception and your planning and control are all, all operating at very fine high resolutions, you can handle very narrow passageways that even are tricky for humans. So that's one of the things. Um, but another is, is on your prediction side, really understanding semantically what's going on. So understanding the difference between construction or a 
doubly parked vehicle or somebody who's reverse parallel parking. If you don't understand what those things are, then your driving might be a little bit awkward. You might get stuck. You might be waiting for a long time. And we've collected enough data and we've built sophisticated enough machine learning and prediction models that we can, for example, detect doubly parked vehicles well before we even have to stop for them. And so one of the fun things on our ride, for example, is you, you experience this several times is there's a doubly parked car, doubly parked truck, and we don't even stop for it. We just very smoothly nudge around often into oncoming traffic, sometimes across a double yellow line, yep. just like a human would. And you're never sitting there waiting. Yeah. I think we saw four, at least four. And, and you could see from, you know, you get the sensor display in that, in that screen in the back seat. And, and you can see that, that it is identifying that as a, as a double parked car. It was accurate every time. And, and yeah, like maybe a hint of hesitation a couple of times, but for the most part, like, like as a human driver, I feel like I would have, uh, you know, hesitated potentially as much or, or maybe even more, which actually brings to another interesting point uh, about this route. You told me a funny story about how you decided to see like how well a human would do on this route. Like, yeah, we, we, we've been, we were driving it for a while and, you know, we're, we, we release a new build of our software every two weeks and we measure everything. And every time somebody takes over and we bucketize it and, uh, you know, basically every two weeks the software gets better and better. And, and we started getting curious, you know, how does it compare to, to humans? Right. And, you know, ultimately the gating factor is going to be, be safety. So, you know, collisions, injuries, and fatalities, but, but along the way before you're superhuman in all of those categories, you can start looking at sort of more minor errors, things that you say, Hey, you know, probably the vehicle shouldn't do this. Right. And so what we started doing was we started putting humans like regular people, drivers on these, on these same routes with train safety drivers in the passenger seat. And we've instructed the train safety drivers to, to actually measure or record every time that the human did something that if they were safety driving, and the vehicle had attempted that, they would have taken over because it's the wrong thing to do. And we actually asked a bunch of Zooks employees, like, hey, how often do you think that's going to happen? Turns out people's guesses were pretty terrible. So, so people thought humans were, were oh, yeah. going to be better people than People thought were. humans were going to be great. People thought, you know, maybe it was going to be every hundred something miles or every thousand something miles. It turns out, uh, and I, I, I encourage anybody to go try to replicate these experiments, but it turns out that humans do something quite wrong about every mile. Right. Uh, on these really difficult routes. I mean, if you're driving in the suburbs, it's much easier. But on these super challenging routes with all kinds of crazy stuff going on, people make pretty bad mistakes roughly every mile or two. It's, it's funny that, that employees of a self-driving car company would like overestimate mm -hmm. human capability. I wonder, I'm just totally guessing here, but like, is it because maybe most people who live and work in San Francisco probably don't drive here very much? Um, I think that's part of it. But I think I think the biggest thing is, you know, human pe people don't realize how, how bad they are at certain things. Right. Uh, and, you know, even when humans make mistakes, it usually doesn't result in a collision. Yeah. So you sort of don't pay that much attention to it. Right. Um, but if somebody's watching you, like if that's their job and they're saying, hey, what are all the things you're doing wrong? Turns out people do a lot of things pretty wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of seems like humans have like two mental models for drivers. There's like yourself and everyone else. Yeah. Well, and you know, like depending on which of those models, like people are either really good or really bad at driving. Yeah. Right? There's those famous surveys where 90 percent of people think they're better than the average driver. And it's like, mm, that's not how math works. <laughs> <laughs> right. You also mentioned something, uh, another piece of this, like dealing with these really narrow and, and tight and complex areas uh, on the mapping level. That sounded really interesting. Um, why don't you go ahead and describe that as well? Oh, are you talking about the, the new the new feature we just yeah, rolled out? The, right. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things that our vehicles do, and we're not sure who else is doing this, but we actually build a 3D map in real time on the vehicle, right? So uh, people are used to building 3D maps offline. So you drive around, you crunch a lot of data on a supercomputer, and then you spit out this beautiful HD map. Um, we 
actually do that online on the vehicle while we're driving. And so we combine, so we basically take all the LiDAR data from all four corners of the vehicle in real time on the GPU, build kind of a live voxel occupancy grid, including ray tracing out for you know, dynamic objects. And we've been doing that for a long time. And it's a really important part of our perception pipeline. But we just in introduced a new feature uh, last week. And so you know, you're on the latest version of our software. And it does that in multi-resolution. So basically, near the vehicle, it, it maintains really tiny voxels at super high resolution. And then far away from the vehicle, it uses bigger, lower resolution voxels. Because if something's 150 meters away, you maybe don't need to know where it is to within you know, three centimeters. But if something's right next to the vehicle, you want to know exactly where it is. So we just rolled out this multi-resolution version of that algorithm. And it allows allows us to have even more precise understanding of opticals around us, and also at the same time, with the same amount of memory and computation, significantly extend our LiDAR perception range. Right, right. So that so that's going to make, I, I assume just at a, like at a general level, doing this onboard mapping is, is a little bit more resource intensive uh, than just having an offline map. But it seems like this is a way to sort of optimize that so you get in the detail where you need it up close and, and not distance. Exactly. Okay. Um, it is sort of you know, because obviously you're developing a self-driving system. You're also developing a whole car, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, uh, how do you how do you think about just obviously at a very high level? Like, think about balancing so resource, right? I, I assume it's electric. Like most people, it's totally electric. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So then range is an issue, mm -hmm. and 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 you have a an energy budget. Yeah. How, how do you think about that in terms of of, of balancing capability and and your energy budget. Yeah, that's a good question. We tend to focus our uh, prioritization on solving autonomous driving first and foremost. Because if you look at computation, it's getting it's getting better and faster and cheaper and more power efficient every single year. And we can count on that happening for at least, you know, another 5 or 10 years, probably more, right? And so if we focus too much on sort of prematurely optimizing for a super tiny compute budget, then we might be spending several more years before we could solve autonomy. And that'd be really bad for Zooks, be bad for society, because right. we really need this technology. So we'd say, look, we're going to use a little bit more computation, we're going to solve autonomous driving, and then over time, it's going to get more and more efficient, and the range of the vehicle will get better and better. Now, that doesn't mean you don't think about how much compute you're using because you never have as much compute as you want. So no matter how much compute you have, you, 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 you know, you tell your, your software engineers, you have this much compute. And then, you know, three months later, they're like, can I have more? And you're like, well, probably not. Totally. And also, I mean, like batteries are getting better too. And, Absolutely. Then, and, and just generally with technology, right. It's like, you want to make something that works before you start to like cost cut it. That's certainly our philosophy. Yes. Yeah. So, um, like how, how much for the, for the, for the whole company, like how much focus is on the driving stack versus sort of developing the product? Because I know you guys have kind of always been doing some of both. Yeah, I mean, in terms of resources, the, the, the hardest thing to do is solve autonomous driving. And that's not just for Zooks, that's for the industry. Everybody's realizing, hey, this is not an easy problem. And you know, for people who've been working on it for a long time, I don't think they ever really thought it was that easy, right? I've, I've been working on self-driving cars for 15 years now, and, and it's, you know, it's a super hard and amazing problem. Uh, but it's not like we started Zooks and thought that the self-driving part would be easy. And the only thing that would be hard would be making a vehicle. Uh, now, it's not that making a vehicle is easy either. And there's an incredible amount of innovation and new thinking in the way we've we've constructed our, our vehicle and put it together. Um, 
But yeah, in terms of percentages, more work than anything else is going into solving the autonomous driving. But the way we look at it is we don't sort of separate it that much. We sort of look at it as one holistic problem. And we say, hey, you know, how can we use the fact that we have our own vehicle to make it easier to solve autonomous driving? And and that's actually, we think, one of our core advantages. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, for sure. So the, like the shape of our vehicle uh, enables 270-degree camera, LIDAR, and radar perception on all top four corners of the vehicle. That's not something that's easily retrofitable onto onto a car because cars have hoods and they're just not the not the ideal shape for autonomous driving. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of many many examples. Yeah, uh, four wheel steering is another one with with front wheel and rear wheel steering. You can get significantly more precise control of the vehicle. So as impressed as you were with our ability to navigate tight spaces, we're actually going to do much better than that still with our own vehicle once it gets on public roads. Yeah, um. You know, it's been really interesting to see like everybody in this space deal with sort of these this roller coaster ups and downs of perception and hype and and all these sorts of things. What have you learned sort of over over these sort of big extremes in public perception around around AVs? What is that? How's that inform what you do? We're pretty heads down, right? And and it's not to say that we never learn anything. In fact. We learn every, a lot every single day that we go out and drive. But we had a pretty good sense, even in 2014 when we started the company, roughly what this was going to look like. You know, we want to build our own vehicle. It's going to be symmetrical, bidirectional, electric. You know, we had a pretty good sense of some of the challenges that were going to be on the autonomous side because, you know, been, we've been working on it for a while. I had a small team at Stanford, and we'd been trying to solve a small subset of these problems that we still had a sense of like, hey, this stuff is really hard, and it's not, you know, sort of this overnight solve this problem kind of a thing. So we've, we've tried to sort of stay pretty balanced and, and level. And, you know, I think some of the things that we were saying four or five, six years ago, uh, we start to hear more of that in the industry now. Like, for example, building a new ground up vehicle for autonomy makes a lot of sense. Like that's something that we were often ridiculed for four or five years ago. And, and now you start to hear more and more companies saying, actually, that's probably the right way to solve this problem. Yeah. Um, I, 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 not optimistic about getting an answer on this, but like, do you have any thoughts about the, the cruise origin that was just Unveiled. They're also a San Francisco-based company. They're operating in a similar but slightly different, maybe domain than you guys are. Uh, any thoughts about that design? Seems it seems similar conceptually, at least, kind of what you guys have talked about. Yeah, we were really excited to see that because, again, you know, we've been saying since 2014, retrofitting this technology onto cars, especially if you're trying to do, you know, level four driving with with without a safety driver and a viable sort of robo taxi business model. We've been saying that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And and we were kind of alone saying that. And so now you have one of our serious competitors saying, okay, we've been working on this problem for five or six years. And now we also agree that doing a ground up vehicle is a much better idea. So we were really happy to see that. Um, we also think that our approach uh, has probably been a little bit more thought out since we've been working on it pretty consistently since 2014. It's not something we just sort of pivoted to a couple of years ago. So we do think that we have a, a pretty significant head start, right? The vehicles that we're building, we haven't shown them publicly yet. We have said that we'll show them later this year. But I think one of the biggest differences is our vehicles are not show cars or concept cars. They're actually driving. Right. Uh, they've actually passed all the FMVSS crash tests, okay. right? They also are full speed vehicles. So yeah. our vehicles can go up to 75 miles an hour. Right. I don't know what cruises max speed is, but they said it was really city speed. So probably they something less. They said highway speed capable. Oh, they did? Yeah, they did. Okay, mm-hmm. that's good yep. to see. Yep. Um, but anyway, we, we do think we have a couple or three year head start in terms of the vehicle development because we're, we're significantly past kind of the concept or show car phase. Right. Okay. So this probably has to be our last question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, clearly, 
uh, the you know the the fundraising environment right now for autonomous vehicle companies has just gotten more difficult, right? Uh, and yet the business model, like a, a sustainable, viable business for almost everybody in the space, is is further out. This is causing people to, you know, uh, this is a challenge, right? Um, I'm curious, you and you mentioned the past partnering with suppliers on some of the the vehicle aspects. Mm-hmm. Like, are you having to deepen relationships? Are you having to look for relationships where you weren't maybe before? Like, is that is that changing? So I wouldn't necessarily phrase it as we're having to, we, yeah. we want to, right? right? Because, you know, if we can find strategic investors for whom there's a, there's a win-win, right? So obviously financial investment is great. Money is great, right? What we're doing costs money. But uh, if there are partners who can help us, right, whether it's technology, whether it's ride sharing, whether it's vehicle side, uh, there are actually a lot of synergies between what we're doing and what other companies are doing. And so when we find companies that believe in our integrated approach and can actually help us with that and are aligned on our mission, we're very happy to talk to them. And so those conversations are going really well. Obviously, I can't share any more details, mm-hmm. uh, but we're very happy with how that's going. Okay. And and I take it like, I mean, you know, clearly you see a, a bridge to, to that viable business model. That's not so far off uh, that, you know, you're having to radically rethink Anything about the business model itself or? No, not at all. We're very consistent with the mission since, you know, since 2014. And, and again, we think we actually have a really good shot at being the first company to get a new type of vehicle out in cities driving customers around. Um, because, again, we've been working on our vehicle program since 2015, right? This is not something that we just thought about a year or two ago. So we are, I think, probably a lot farther along than most people realize. And, again, we'll, we'll share more about that later this year. Uh, but we're really excited, and we don't think it's actually many years away anymore. Okay. Well, so just speaking for myself, that ride was a lot further along than I expected. Uh, it was really impressive. So I'm um, looking forward to, to seeing more. And thanks as always for, uh, for making the time for us. I appreciate it. Yeah. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit autonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So Ed, um, that sounds like it's pretty interesting and uh, quite the ride. And Jesse was, um, you know, pretty transparent about things, but... Um, I'm trying to read between the lines a little bit here. Maybe we should connect the dots. What was your impression when he was talking about partnerships? Uh, one thing we do know is that Zooks has, um, you know, has struggled a bit to um, raise big round. Uh, there's rumors circulating about what's next for Zooks. They are trying to do a ton. Um, it's no small feat, even for a well-capitalized company. So what does this mean, the partnerships line? What do you think? Yeah, well, um, I mean, yeah, I think I think what you just described is sort of what I was trying to get at there. Because, um, yeah, I mean, like, obviously, I was super impressed with with the ride and the technology and what they're doing. And, and it was my first exposure to that stuff. But at the same time, I think we're all hearing rumors and whispers and, and stuff about about some of the 
the challenges that I think a lot of players in this space are having. And Zooks, sort of that combination of, as we've discussed before, like huge ambitions to not just develop a stack, but develop a car, develop a service, you know, do that all in-house. Um, the combination of that ambition and like not being the best funded uh, player in the space, not having a massive OEM partner or even two as, as, as some companies do, um, that's just a challenge. And, and yeah, we have heard that they've been trying to race around um, and, you know, for a while now. And so, so I wanted to get a sense of that. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, like, this is not something that a company that's, you know, trying to raise around and, and potentially having a hard time with that is going to be like, yes, like, let me open the kimono all the way for you here, right? Um, but I think, uh, clearly, that is, is a challenge that they're trying to deal with. Certainly, I would say there were a number of hints, um, at, at like, like, not in the interview, but just in my visit to Zooks that suggest that, like, the belt is, is maybe a little tight there right now. Um, and, uh, and that's an issue. So I will say, though, um, for me, their technology was so much more impressive than I was expecting. Um, I kind of have a hard time seeing like nobody being interested in them as a company. Now, of course, everything sells for a price, right? And the question is like, not, not that they're for sale, but like partnerships, equity, investment, part, you know, all of that happens at a price. Um, and the question is, what's the right price, I think, for Zooks? Um, Alex, who do you think? I have a question for Alex. Sorry to cut you off, but I've just been thinking about it. Alex, who do you... And then Ed, who do you think would be the perfect partner for Zooks? Like what makes the most sense in terms of like culture fit and um, obviously money? Well, you know, can you imagine what the world would look like if SoftBank and GM had put money into Zooks instead of Cruz, given, given what you've seen? I don't know. Maybe that hurt the culture. It's hard to know. You know, like that, that type of influence can change culture. You know, it's not just, that's what I mean. It's not just about capital. It sometimes it has to be, it, it's just as important to have a good culture fit. And um, I'm going to guess that um, this is pure speculation. Uh, Kyle Vote has, you know, go back, you know, four years or something. Kyle Vote had, uh, he'd raised money in the past and he had sold companies in the past. So he had a clear, he had a, he clearly saw the necessity of having an OEM partner and, and taking the soft bank money. And that's, that put them where they are today for better or for worse. Um, the, you know, original Tim Kentley, Clay and Levinson go in, uh, Levinson is, I, I find him very likable. I like him very much. Um, clearly technically talented. Tim Kentley, Clay did not appear to have had the fundraising or, acquisition or M&A experience that like vote had. And so I think that, you know, speculating that any opportunity there had been to take on uh, an OEM partner was probably a non-starter when, when Clay was present. And I'm sure that his departure had a, a lot to do speculating <laughs> with the change of tune we're seeing from Zook. So I think they probably have decent tech, um, but they're in a tough spot because there are only so many OEMs in the world. And, I think we've already passed the point where of every OEM having their own AV stack investment baby. We're starting to see multiple OEMs go into the same stack company. Uh, you're seeing you know, Cruise has that. I mean, Argo has that. VW and Ford. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's an OEM out there that's going to make like the partnership with Zooks that you know um, they want. 
Uh, what about like a company like Apple? Apple, of course. Everyone's going to bring up Apple. No, no, no. Uh, well, there, there are specific reasons, though. You know, culturally, probably. Um, and product-wise, product it seems like. I mean, again, from what we know about Zeus's product, which is not a lot. You know, Apple has – there's been a lot of speculation about what Apple's been trying to do. You know, it is rumored that they've had actually two different, if not three different approaches at different points in time. Um, to Project Titan. And uh, I imagine Zook's probably lined up with one of them. Is it the one that's currently percolating? Nobody knows. Um, somebody knows. They're not telling. Well, you also understand the familial connection, correct? I do. Would you like to share it with our audience? Well, Levinson's father, Arthur, ran Genentech, right? And he's also, I believe, the chair of Apple. The chairman. Yeah, I, I think that that's correct. If only we knew a great journalist who knew the sector who could verify that. <laughs> so, so I mean, I agree. I think that Apple is is obviously always going to be an interesting proposition for a company like this that really wants to control like every aspect of the product, uh, but doesn't maybe have the financial resources to do it. Um, and certainly, I think that you know, uh, unless Apple has some stuff that's just hidden, like that we don't know about. Um, you know, Zooks, clearly, clearly they have, there's some value there for sure. No doubt about it. Uh, in my mind, anyway, having, having experienced it. Um, I actually think that the most likely um, partner, maybe not necessarily even the best, but the most likely one is potentially a, um, a big German, probably tier one supplier. Um, and you have companies like, like ZF, who's been on the show, um, over a year ago now, um, and talked about the huge amounts of money that they're planning on dropping in this space. I uh, haven't seen a ton of results from them yet in, in the full autonomy area. Certainly in ADAS, they're doing a lot, which is where the money is in the short term. Um, I could see them, uh, you know, a company that, you know, ZF or, or a company like that, um, you know, being the one that, that kind of steps in because they've got the manufacturing expertise, they can get that product to market, um, they can make a manufacturing credit part of. Uh, a deal, um, and uh, they can really help sort of take that to the next level so that Zooks can focus on the stuff that they're obviously doing really well, which is uh, the self-driving stack stuff. Um, so that, that's kind of the scenario I would expect. I don't think an OEM is going to kind of come in and buy Zooks outright, um, but I think a supplier um, could be a really good good partner for them. You know, obviously Apple is the kind of the fun long shot one, and, you know, and I would say that even without like... Uh, that sort of family connection situation. But I, I'm wondering, does Zook strike you as a company that just would prefer to be independent and call its own shots? Or do they, do they seem open to that? Just like, just when you're walking through their offices, which you got to see, what's the vibe? Because that will actually help determine what might end up being, you know, what they ultimately are shooting for. Um, is that why you think that they would go with a supplier type of relationship over a big, huge tech conglomerate, for example, or a traditional OEM? Um, yeah. So, so I think it actually has some, at this point more to do with the acquirer slash partner than it does with Zooks. I think at this point, again, I, I hate to be so pessimistic, having been so impressed uh, by so much about Zooks, but I, I just I, I think they're in a tough spot, and I think they need some help to to get this over the line and to get towards a um, a viable business. And so uh, honestly, I think that, um, you know, Jesse is clearly uh, very committed uh, to seeing 
this vision that he's been working on for so long uh, brought to reality. I think he sees that there are real advantages to doing a ground up robo taxi. Um, and uh, I think he's, I think he's committed to that. And I think that, you know, if the right partner and the right deal comes along, I mean, he essentially said, you know, as we heard uh, that, that, that would be something, you know, they, they see the value in having those kinds of partnerships uh, in order to make this happen. So, um, and yeah, if I had to, if I had to identify the vibe, um, it definitely, you know, it's clear that that just financially they're not on the same league as a as a cruise or or even an Argo uh, in terms of the amount of funding that they have to throw um, at at all the talent and everything that you need to make this work. Speaking of leagues, you know, I you know I travel a lot for work and uh, in and keep my mouth shut and, and listen. And it is in, it is I cannot overstate the degree to which you know city leaders. Forget state, just city leaders uh, are paying attention to what's happened with the scooter wars and uh, what's happened in San Francisco over there, what's happening with Salida Reynolds in LA with Uber and, and MDS. And these people are not stupid. Like they do not, they're looking out, you know, many years ahead and they're having to make decisions on transit investments on, in policy. If a company, wants to scale autonomous vehicle technology is not making friends in local markets today or, and is already out there talking to cities they want to go to in two or three or five years. It almost doesn't matter if their tech is good. And so a lot would have to go out the window if Zooks is acquired by a tier one, because Zooks right now, their model is the stack, the car, the software, it's everything. Uh, the platform, you know, direct, you know, customers know they're booking with the Zooks brand. They sell to a tier one. Tier one's going to throw all that out except for the car and the software. And maybe they may even throw out the car too. And now they are selling back some portion of Zooks technology back to OEMs to deploy through yet another layer, which may be another partner, an Uber, a Lyft, whomever. So what I think so many ships that sail have sailed at this point that I think they're going to get acquired by somebody who look, takes the talent, throws out most of, of the tech, um, and keeps some of the software. Uh, and then we move into, there are four companies left in the world building AV stacks and, and vehicles, and they're very tightly aligned with the OEMs. Um, that's what I think. And I think that there is a profound shortage, not even just tech uh, skills, profound shortage of city level outreach and the people qualified to do it hmm. i i mean look i i don't think a deal will happen if if the plan is to just strip it and, and throw everything away i think that they're you know yeah i have a lot I, of unless they have to miss the window to sell their media startups between 2000 and 2000 you know uh five they missed one if not two windows to sell and I and they were all a lot younger back then and, and learned a lot about not missing an opportunity and taking it. Uh, but the cost of deploying at scale in multiple cities, this technology is so vast that I think that uh, the companies that want to do that need to be thinking not just you know, five years out, but more like 10 to 20 years out. And that means political relationships um, that begin began yesterday. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, well, in any case, I do um, really 
uh, appreciate that that Zooks is is willing to be as open as they are now by you know taking someone like me on a car in that kind of crazy environment. I really my hope of all this and out of purely self interested reasons is that um, more companies start maybe take a little more risk uh, with some of the demo drives that they're doing so that they can kind of highlight um, you know how capable these these systems really are becoming because that certainly happened here in Zooks' case for me. Um, so uh, that's kind of one of my big takeaways from this is just hopefully we see we see more of that um, less less sort of safe demos and more sort of really I, tough, I challenging environment. that Cruise will not have demo drives again until Zooks is acquired or goes away. Interesting. Because I think Zooks' stuff is probably decent based on what you observed. And Cruise... Um, is not is not where Zooks is. Amazingly, incredibly. Do you think Do you think there's any possibility of a Zooks cruise merger of some kind? Do you think that could ever happen? I, I have honestly have no idea. Uh, that sounds like a very weird culture fit. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, kind of the problem with a lot of these companies is that they kind of develop their own identities and. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't want to be at a company that gets a vehicle operating fairly well and. You know, and then three, four, five years from now, showing up in cities saying our car works, and uh, they don't have a friend in that city yet. I think that's a much bigger problem, and I'll always harp on that. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered a lot. We have. I think it's time to uh, let our listeners go. All right. Well, on that note, we will see you back here next week on another episode of the Atomic House.